What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast, Season 1. This one goes to 11. That's a Spinal Tap reference, because it's Episode 11. All right, if you don't know Spinal Tap, get with the tapes. All right, I went even deeper there. Get with the tapes. That's a term the old school cats like to use if you showed up to rehearsal or the gig without knowing the material. Get with the tapes. That means, hey, get your act together. Learn your parts. Okay, this is episode 11. There's one more episode this season, episode 12. It's going to be a solo endeavor. I'm going to answer your questions, and I'm going to talk about my experiences and my most valuable lessons I learned from this season. And then, well, I think we might start a second season afterwards. We'll see. But hit me up on Instagram, at Corey J. Wong, or Facebook, Corey Wong Music. Send me a message. Let me know if you have any questions that you want me to answer or if there's any topics that you want me to talk about. I'm happy to do it. Now, anyways, today's episode features one of my favorite guitar players in the world, James Ballantyne. You know him from Maroon 5. I knew him originally from Real Big Fish. We're going to get into it. Don't worry about it. I was a ska kid, okay? I was a ska kid. It was the 90s. Now, Maroon 5 has seen basically all of the successes that you could possibly want as a band. Multiple Grammys, Moon Men from MTV Video Music Awards. They played the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Hits after hits after hits. They've been at it for over 20 years now. Truly inspiring. And James is truly a great guitar player and a consummate student of the instrument. So we're going to get into plenty of this stuff. I'm not going to hold you up anymore. Hit it! All right, folks, you're listening to a guitar podcast. What does that mean? I'm going to talk a little bit about guitar gear, okay? Now, this podcast is presented by Fender and Premier Guitar Magazine. So, today we're talking about that Fender Player Series. Fender is stoked to welcome the Duo Sonic Mustang and Mustang Bass to the Player Series family. Shorter scale necks, cool asymmetrical shape, classic Fender colors. It's a win-win-win. I personally have a Mustang PJ bass out of the Player Series, and I love it. That one, it's my personal favorite out of the basses there because I can get the J sound with the bridge pickup, and I can get more of the P sound with the neck pickup, and the middle is a nice little blend. As far as the guitars go, the Duo Sonic, the Mustang, cool designs. Obviously, everybody, come on, we're guitar players. You're familiar with the Stratocaster. You're familiar with the Telecaster, but don't let your research Stop there. Designed for authentic fender tone with a bit of an edge, Alnico single coils, split coil and humbucking pickups. You get your foot in the past while looking to the future of guitar tone. Now what I would suggest, try to go to a fender dealer, see if you can get your hands on one of these necks because the modern C-shape is really cool. Fits really nice in my hand. If you can't get to a Fender dealer, check out the website. If you have any other Fender guitar that you can reference, there's a really cool diagram where you can see the shapes of all the Fender necks and the styles of necks. This one, really comfortable, very playable. I love the modern C-shaped neck. Now, I talked about the Mustang, Mustang bass, Duo Sonic, but yes, they've got the Telecaster. They've got the Stratocaster with the kind of specifications across the player series. So go check it out. If you're curious, hit Fender.com. You can see a whole array of things there. Check out their YouTube page. Dig it. Well, dude, thanks so much for joining us. Fun to have you on here. It's great to be here. It's a it's a real honor. Right. I, I would just I just want to interview you. 
Okay, we can we can get to there. I I have some planned questions, and you might have planned questions. We can we can turn the tables around when it feels right. Because I've been listening to the Metropole Orchestra record. It's so awesome. It's so cool what you did there. Like it's it's incredible. And I I also jumped in on the mixing tutorial you did. That was fascinating. It was great. Oh, thanks, man. It's fun. It is a lot of work to mix an orchestra and a and a rhythm section together. Yeah, that blew my mind. When I found out that you did that yourself, I was like, oh, of course. Wow. Blown <laughs> me away. Wow. That's insane. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. That was a huge operation. Another huge operation. Maroon 5. Dude, you guys are freaking huge. When I Okay, I'm going to go back and talk about the first time I saw you, the second time I saw you, and then where you're at now. The first time I ever saw you play guitar was with Real Big Fish when I was in middle school. My mom dropped me off at the Quest in Minneapolis, and you were playing for Real Big Fish because Aaron Barrett broke his arm or something. Exactly. I forgot that you saw one of those shows. That's so incredible. How did that happen? And was that pre-Kara's Flowers Maroon 5? Was that like right when you moved to California? How did you get connected to that scene? Yeah, Real Big Fish is really at the center of, of all of it. So long story short, I moved out to LA with my band from Nebraska. We were called Square. And we were kind of like this fusion pop trio. It was kind of a weird band. It kind of sounded like Ben Folds meets Steely Dan. And it was kind of like super hyper music. Um, and, you know, it had a lot of guitar solos because it was a little more fusion. -y. So that band won the Ernie Ball Battle of the Bands in 1999. Sick. And we, we won $25,000. So we used that money to move out to LA. Yeah. Or what we thought was LA. Because we actually moved to Anaheim. Uh, very different. <laughs> yeah, but very you, different. You didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's. We looked at the map, and it all kind of seemed like L.A. was just you know, yeah, this big blob. We're like, oh well, we know somebody in Anaheim. So at the finals of that Battle of the Bands competition, Real Big Fish performed, and so I met the guys from Real Big Fish that night, and they saw us play. And then when we, when we happened to move to Anaheim, that that was near where they were headquartered they were an orange county band yeah um so i ran into i ran into them at a coffee shop and then we became friends because they they had seen us play and stuff yeah so when aaron barrett broke his hand they i got the call to fill in and it was on like two days notice so uh -huh. i had to learn their entire set um and it was amazing and it was it was really important for me because that was the first that was the first legit like rock tour that i had ever been on was the band in a bus van what was the touring sitch yeah they were in a bus so that was that was the first time that i had been on a real tour bus yeah because you know this is this that was 2000 mm -hmm. so you know and and there's by the way they're still doing it and they're still playing <laughs> the same venues yeah because you know this was still not not so far after their hit where they were on MTV and they were kind of all over modern rock radio and stuff. So they had pretty big audiences, but they've maintained those audiences to this yeah. day. Yeah. Totally. So that was my, that was my first like legit playing in front of people. That, like it was the first time I had played in front of people and they'd actually really been stoked rather than like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, here's my weird project. <laughs> That's awesome. And then the second time I saw you, I was, 
I'm a, I'm a Midwest kid also. So I was a teenager. My friends and I drove to Summerfest in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we saw Maroon 5 open up for John Mayer. Yes. And at that time, Maroon 5 was a guitar show. You and Adam were both shredding. If I remember right, songs about Jane had already come out and, and you had been touring songs about Jane maybe for a couple years even. All of a sudden, these hits just emerged from this record that had already existed and you were playing these hit songs and then shredding and jamming at the end of them. And that was just like my dream. Oh, that's, <laughs> that is so mind-blowing. Because that, that seems like, in a lot of ways, that just seems like yesterday for me. But yeah, we were on tour for so long. And I mean, to bring it back to Real Big Fish, so it was it was the Real Big Fish guys who... It was Aaron Barrett who took me to my first Cars Flowers show because he was a big fan of Cars Flowers, which was the other four guys uh, that would become Maroon 5 when I joined. And he took me to that first show and he knew those guys. And that's how I got hooked up ultimately with with Maroon. Um, And uh, yeah, we toured that first record forever. And and the guitar solos were necessary because we only had one album and, and we, we sort of started, uh, once we started headlining, we needed to fill up, you know, an entire set and we only had like 45 minutes worth of songs. So, yeah. And also we were, we were touring with like mayor and we were touring with kind of like the, the Southern college rock scene, you know, we toured with OAR. It was kind of, it was almost a jam bandy sort of thing. So, so we would extend the songs. I mean, that's what, that's, we were way more into that at that point. That's what I was into. And, you know, yeah. I, I would have liked for us to go completely that direction into like sure. being a jam band. Cause that was fun for me because we actually yeah. improvised on a nightly basis. And yeah, and we, we went a different direction. Totally. For better or worse, whatever. You guys are in ultra success. I mean, you've just played the Super Bowl. I don't know that you would have been jamming for for an hour <laughs> at the halftime show. <laughs> no, we would not. No, we would not. But I do think that that period, looking from, from an outsider's perspective, for me as a musician and as a pop music fan, that's the reason why Maroon 5 became one of my favorite bands is because there was both of those elements. There was the pop, there was the great songs, the great voice. And then all the music stuff that was really fun to listen to as a muso. Yeah, I mean, well, thank you. It's it's so crazy to think of a young Corey Wong just in the audience, like soaking it up at like a <laughs> Mayor Maroon Five show in two thousand three or whatever. Yeah, dude, it was it was insane. It was so fun. It was very formative time for me when I was starting to figure out how to play a little more than the pentatonic scale. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy, man. Because. Yeah. Because I feel like it, because we kind of, at the time, there wasn't a lot, you know, I think that that album kind of hit. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of bands that were like, just even playing like clean funk guitar. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so like, because we kind of got that from other things. And like the record company kind of wanted us to be more of a rock band. Mm-hmm. because it was kind of still the end of modern rock. And so they were kind of pushing us in that direction, but we were kind of interested in this soul and funk stuff. And that's, that's how I got in the band too, because I kind of had a little bit more of that just from my background 
playing jazz and, and like my funk band that I had back in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were a lot of bands doing that, but I think about that all the time. Cause when I see like, when I see you guys doing what you're doing, you know, it was, how can I explain? Like you guys are, are playing like the type of, of guitar stuff that we were aspiring to play, you know, but you guys, you guys are like, doing like the real version of it now i feel like you know like like we were we were just kind of like faking it because we were kind of maybe probably really just like rock guys but we were like you know figured out some nile rogers licks and then and then you guys come out and it's like oh see that's what we were trying to do you know like we just couldn't actually didn't have the facility you're too kind you're too kind well you joined the band when it had already existed so i have a question about that is when you joined the band what was your approach do you join the band and, and fit into the mold of what they've done? So when I listen back to some Cara's Flowers stuff, when I listen to... I, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan, so I've, I've known the band for years, like I said. So Soap Disco sounds very Orange County, pop punk. There is... Uh, see, I didn't know that that was pre-you because I thought that some of your jazz influence had to do with like the fact that the chorus has a minor four and there's chrom- chromatic melodic motion and the tune Myself has you know some of those things that are that seem to me like Maroon 5 figuring out who Maroon 5 is. And then there's a progression of the band and when you joined what was your approach? Was it I'm going to bring something different? I'm going to bring just something similar to what the band has. What was your approach to joining a band that pre-existed? Well, I I was also a fan um and, you know, I was a fan of that first record, Fourth World, that you're talking about that has those songs. And then there was also, there were these demos floating around Orange County because they had like, you know, they were, after they put out that record, The Fourth World, they were signed as teenagers. Yeah. And put out this record, you know, Rob Cavallo produced it. Yeah. They were going to be the next big thing and nothing happened. And, you know, it was the 90s. They signed so many bands and then just dropped them as soon as, nothing was happening. Um, and so, so they were sort of in this transition period, there were these recordings floating around when I became aware of them called the stag street recordings, which were their demos, which was kind of in between, uh, that fourth world sound and what would become maroon five. And you could tell they were kind of like reaching, they were, they were experimenting a little bit. Like there was a song that sounded like Dave Matthews. There was like a song that sounded like Oasis. There was, but then there were a couple of songs that were starting to lean towards like some R and B type of sounds. And then, and then by the time I joined, I think they kind of decided like, that's kind of where they wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And that, that was one of the things that I could bring to the band because they saw me play with square and I was playing like, you know, we were doing like, uh, we had like, you know, jazz voices, yeah. you know, that they, they, they didn't really totally have, or that they were, they were starting to get into, you know, Jesse was starting to study jazz piano. Sure. And so like there, and, and so, and I was playing kind of like jazz line, you know, and mm-hmm. just uh, modes, you know, because they were coming more from a Beatles type of harmonic world, which of course has all that in it, but it was, yeah. it was that more straight ahead power pop sort of thing. But you could tell they were interested in, in like, extending that harmonic language on fourth world from the like minor four and that sort of stuff. So they heard me and I had a little bit more of that under my fingers. So they're like, Oh, this is perfect as we're kind of doing this more, this jazzier sort of R and B sort of thing. So it was pretty, it was, it was pretty easy to fit in. I mean, when I, 
like I didn't audition for the band or, or anything like that because at the time I was still in my other band, but what they had me do, they would play at these frat parties at UCLA that, and at the time Adam was really into fish, yeah, you know, and it was, it was really just, they just wanted to go set up their instruments and just jam for a couple hours. And I would just go with them to jam and we could just improvise a set of music and it was super fun. And so that was kind of like my audition into it because I could kind of follow them wherever they were going. Yeah. And it, it was really fun. So it, so it fit in pretty easily. And, and it was also because Jesse was, was also playing piano and then switching to get guitar. Yeah. So for the new songs, they all had some, some sort of key element. So he needed to focus on that. So, so they needed another guy anyway. That's so fun. I did not know that that's kind of, that the fish and jam thing was such a deep root for you guys. And to, to see the progression of the band now, when you, when you explore your evolution as a band, where you're talking about these frat parties and where the band came from and all the power pop, the, the jam sessions, all this stuff, songs about Jane to now, there is, there is a clear evolution. And, you know, like you're saying, you could have taken a couple different routes. And as you see that, thing go and go more and more pop and more and more into the intentional this is the exact thing rather than a, lo a lot of the improvisation based thing and some of it even being a lot of programming or less quote-unquote guitar centered how do you explore evolution as a band and the, the flip side of that is how do you reconcile and get the fans on board when you are kind of going in a new direction as a band well, I, I think pretty early on, like that transition, that early transition was really informative because they had some hardcore fans, like at the time that I became aware of them, of the fourth world and of that power pop sound. Yeah. And I was in the audience when they like played the song, Not Coming Home. Like, I don't know mm -hmm. if you know that song, but it's got that like, it's got this riff that's like very much inspired by Timbaland, that Aaliyah song, Darren, Aaron, Aaron. You know, yeah. so it was like it was a complete departure, and I was in the audience, and I could literally see the like look around the crowd and see the people that loved it, and then saw people that hated it. Sure, and, and from that that first that first sort of experiment into that that R and B sort of sound, like I think, especially Adam really got into challenging the fans. Mm. and it, with with something new and he almost he almost sort of gets off on on like putting something out to to like make people to sort of polarize people yeah you know which 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 i understand because it's like you could it's really easy to to get comfortable in you know what you're doing you know as a guitar player as, as a band and like all right here's our you know here's the next thing and at, at that point, I think he really got into the idea of being like, oh, no, we're, it's going to be like, they're not going to expect it. It's going to be this completely sort of different thing. And I think throughout uh, throughout our career, I think he's he's wanted to to push it that way. And I, so I think that like we, we kind of had a template of a sound from songs about Jane that even went into it won't be soon before long. And yeah. then hands all over, we were kind of we were kind of adrift for a moment because i don't we we weren't really sure which way we were going to go until we did moves like jagger which was another one of those moves where i was like okay you think you know what we sound like all right 
here's something completely different. Yeah. And it again polarized the audience. A lot of people are like, what the hell is this? But of course, then it ushered in this whole new era of, of like you're saying, like that hyper focused, here's exactly what it is. And uh-huh. it's exactly tailored and produced for the radio and, uh, and, you know, trimmed all the fat and it's, it's just pure pop. How has that changed your role and the way that you go about your function in the band from it being kind of a, a band writing and centric thing to maybe more of a producer writing thing with a band? Yeah. I mean, it, it completely changed it. The, the beginning era, it was really about, you know, a lot of those songs were written just from jams. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, from, you know, and, and before songs about Jane, those came out of rehearsals or, you know, ideas that people had, but mostly things were fleshed out together. Mm-hmm. And then as, as we started to you know, we had the sound checks, we were writing sound checks, usually jamming from, it would be a chord progression that me or Jesse would come up with or a riff. And then writing from there. And um, it, when moves like Jagger happened, that was the first time also we had really worked with any outside writers because up yeah. until that point, you know, for the first 10 years, we prided ourselves on we only write the songs together and, and yeah. that's it. Um, and so moves like Jagger was the first time we had collaborated with someone else. And that it was kind of a relief to, to know like, Oh, we don't have to do all this heavy lifting. There's a lot of great uh, writers out there with amazing ideas that we can collaborate with. Yeah. Um, you know, cause those first three records, they took each, you know, at least a year to make because, you know, it just takes a long time to amass uh, the, the, amount of material that you need for a song like that, especially if, you know, if you're swinging for the fences the way we are, where, yeah. where we treat every song that goes on the record as if it could be a single, yes. you know, that's kind of the level that it needs to be for us to put it on the record. So, so the first time working with, uh, you know, on moves like Jagger was with Benny Blanco and Shellback, which is like the first time you collaborate with outside writers. Those are pretty good guys to collaborate oh, yeah. with. Oh Yeah. <laughs> who were also just at the beginning of their whole thing, you know? So, um, so that completely changed. It was, it was nice. It kind of opened it up because I think all of us then became a little more involved in, uh, in more aspects of the writing process. Like, uh, on the fourth record on overexposed, a lot of the, the ideas, you know, I co-produced some of the tracks and, um, ideas, were coming in from all over and there was a real open sort of collaborative spirit, which was cool. It took some adjustment because at first it was kind of like, Oh, all these other outside people are kind of coming in on, on what used to be just the band's turf that, uh, you know, of, of writing. So that, yeah. that took an adjustment, but, um, it really, I think it really benefited us obviously because it allowed us to, uh, just, tap into more creativity. That's awesome to hear because I, I would think that some people would think the opposite, bringing in a producer, bringing in somebody who's going to like put the clamp on your sound and put the clamp on what you do. But it's cool to hear that it, it opened up a different creative window for you. I think it's important too that we already had, you know, 10 years under our belt. And so we had, we had kind of defined a sound that, and I think there's a through line, there's elements of our sound that, that remained 
Mm-hmm. Be- because I think, you know, a lot of these producers that we were working with that were younger than us, they grew up, you know, like, like you, they grew up listening to Maroon 5. So they all kind of had their idea of what Maroon 5 sounded like. So they would bring yeah. in those, I- you know, which is funny. Cause it's funny when it's bad, you know, <laughs> where you hear an idea <laughs> of like, Hey, I got you because for a lot of people, it's just like, all it would take is like a minor, like clean, funky, you know, like minor seventh chord. And they're like, check it out. It's Maroon 5. You're like, oh, it's, that's, I don't know if that's, yeah. <laughs> that's all that it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's all you guys bring to the table is a funky minor seven chord. <laughs> it's there a lot, but no, that's all. I mean, that's funny. That's funny to hear. The I do hear a through line through everything, and so much of it has to do with the amount of hooks, not just vocally and lyrically and melodically, but there's so many hook parts that you play. When I think about Maroon 5 songs, like moves like Jagger, Harder to Breathe, This Love, She Will Be Loved, what's your approach to writing hooks on the guitar? Well, I think you know a lot of those that you mentioned, they, they just came out of... You know, when you're messing around and when you're giving yourself the freedom to, you know, just, you know, pick up the guitar in the morning and there's that space where you just are drawn to, to play things. And then just, you know, I think like grabbing out from that, that pure creative zone, like, oh, that's an interesting thing. Like, should save that, you know, voice memo that. Yeah. Um, and and then expand it into to something else. Uh, that's that's one way. That's the way a lot of those sort of come come around. Or you know, it'll come from for me. That's why I'm I'm always interested in in learning new stuff on guitar, or just even figuring out you know like whatever song by somebody, or or like a new sort of chordal concept or something. Because you play around with it, and then instantly, you know, hopefully you take it out of like uh, you know drill mode. And, and try to make it into something musical. And sometimes you, you end up with like an idea that, that could develop into a song. Like she will be loved. I was kind of like, for whatever reason, I was, I was playing like a bossa Nova type of thing. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it totally developed into something else. But I, at the time I, I had been working on like bossa Nova patterns. Yeah. Now it's not now to the snobs who are listening. I'm sure it's, the, it's not a, a pure bossa nova pattern anymore but it started off like that and so yeah. so you know and, and that's kind of the cool thing is like you know you learn something from somebody else and you obviously get it wrong and it sort of comes through your own filter and yeah. turns into something else but you're right like it, the more hooks the better so you you want to make every sort of element on the track as as hooky as possible and and so we're always kind of looking for those parts and sometimes it starts with those and for a lot of those older records too, it would be, you know, hours in the studio just looping it, looking for something that would complement, but not step on the vocals. That's kind of always the most important thing. Is like, there's a lot of cool parts that I would come up with that would just be all over the melody line. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like finding those pockets in between, uh, you know, the melody where where those little hooks can kind of come in and those those that's hard to do too yeah when you see other guitar players playing with pop acts or playing with other singers what are some just a couple general principles that you always apply i mean what you just said is a great one but is there any other things yeah i mean i i think you i think you serve the song and just and and remember that you're there you know in pop music you know i always feel like i'm there to support 
Adam. You know, I'm there to support the the main melody of the song. That's what that's what people are really connecting with yeah. in in pop music at least. You know, like we're certainly fans of a lot of other types of music where that's not the case. A lot of the stuff that I listen to, it's it's flipped around. Yeah. You know, but but in the case of pop music, uh the melodies first and you know go for the hooks. Go for you know simpler it, it took me so long to learn that simpler in this context is, is always better because I came in, you know, like a lot of young dudes, guns a blazing, trying to, you know, you want to show what you can do. Yeah. And, um, and that, you know, a, a pop song is not always the place for that. You you're there to support the melody. All right, this is a fun conversation, but I'm going to stop us for a second and give you a little reminder. Check that shop.fender.com. I actually happen to be on the website right now. I'm checking out this new player series. I'm looking at this Duo Sonic because it is a nice shorter scale for anybody who might have smaller hands or even for kids if they're trying to find a guitar that's not quite full scale. Check this thing out, all right? Let's get back to it. Is there anything that you really took away from writing and working with other producers once you shifted into that era of the band? Is there anything that opened up your eyes guitar playing wise when you started working with quote unquote bigger name producers? That's an interesting question. I, I, it would be hard. Like the experiences that we had, you know, being in the studio with like Shellback and Max Martin mm-hmm. was, was such an amazing experience. I, you know, it's not because I, I don't think I, I don't think that I could distill it down to like specific principles other than the ones that I've sort of mentioned. But well, here's a principle that I learned from those guys. I mean, they will spend they'll put the time in to really to really exhaust a lot of the different possibilities that are there. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it's on a lyric or on a part, you know, that they will spend the time. Um, because I think that there's a lot of times and, and, it, and it's hard to balance because on one, on one hand, you don't want to overthink things and you want, you want to create in a sort of spontaneous environment. And so you want to have that sort of creative time, but in like finishing the records, you know, those guys will spend days and weeks, you know, on a specific part or a specific lyric, try exhausting all the different sort of possibilities. So it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of contradictory advice. You know, you need to be spontaneous, allow things to flow, but then there's a time for that. And there's a time to sort of hunker down and really put in the work. You know, I think from, from those guys, a big lesson that I learned was that, you know, like Max Martin, he shows up at the studio in the morning, basically treats it like a nine to five, which up until that point, I had kind of treated songwriting like, oh, well, you know, it's a vibey thing that can sort of happen if we're jamming, you know, you know, or maybe late at night, you know, after a couple of drinks, we'll smoke a joint and there's writing to, to that could be done that way. But there's also like, you can show up every day to work and be like, all right, today we're going to finish a song. And, and, up until that point, I hadn't really been introduced to that more formal sort of system of songwriting, which I can can be very sort of freeing to have that sort of discipline because then you're like, okay, we're going to show up at 10 a.m. and we're going to work until six o'clock. And then after that, 
I can resume my normal life rather than I think in the early days, I would just always kind of be like, Oh, well, I got to be near a guitar. If I have an idea, I need to run and do it. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't make any plans to do anything when we're in album making mode. Sure. Um, so if that makes any sort of sense, yeah. Cause I, oh. because you still need to be able to, to follow those ideas when they come. But also it's, it's kind of, if, if you give your brain the comfort knowing that you've already put in a hard day's work, then, then I think that that leads to a better overall lifestyle. At this point, is it the label managers or you guys leading the charge on who you want to produce your stuff or who you choose to collaborate with? I mean, it's, it's completely us at this point. Um, we we're lucky, you know, I think early on we had a lot of, um, the label was, was pretty hands-on. I mean, we were a new band and, and they had a lot invested in us, but I think, uh, pretty early on we showed, uh, that we had the right instincts. I mean, for example, the label didn't want to release moves like Jagger. They wanted to go with a different single. And, and we, we kind of like with, with our, our, our manager, he, we really believed in it. And so he kind of, he, we kind of had to pull one on the label to actually get it out. Yeah. And it ended up really working. And at that point we kind of had independence. They were like, okay, you guys know what you're doing. That's cool. When I saw your show, it was the tour where you started with the scene from back to the future. Oh yeah. When I saw that tour, I thought to myself, wow, there is so much overhead involved here. You had the double catwalk. It's an arena tour. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of stuff going on. You know, with with Wolfpack and with Corey Wong and Fearless Flyers, it's all independent. We're very hands-on with the business side of things. We're aware of every dollar that we spend. When I look at that operation, I was just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I, I wouldn't even know where to start with with half of this. How hands-on are you guys with with that sort of thing in the business? And and at, at this point, are you... like? Do you guys make those decisions on your own or do you kind of say, okay, here's what we're thinking as far as budget for this, 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 here's what can fit. But also the creative side, do you cast the vision for what that's going to look like? Yeah, we've, we've been really lucky to work with some really talented set designers. So yeah, when we're approaching a tour... We try to find a designer that we vibe with, and then we start talking about visions. And it usually goes, you know, we start to look at budgets because it's a balance. You know, we're at the end of the day, we're pretty much just like a rock band. We get up there, we play our songs. You know, it's, it's, we're not like we don't have dancers, you know, or (laughs) fireworks, but, but we are we are in the space of like top 40 pop. And so if you go to, you know, like a Katy Perry show or something like that, there's a lot of stuff going on. So, so we feel like there's a certain amount of production that we need to bring to an arena show. So it's, it's balancing out like, okay, what can we do to make this, you know, uh, exciting, um, without overwhelming just, you know, the music itself. Yeah. And, and but also you know looking at the budgets of these things do cost a lot of money. So yeah. it's, it's and it's usually usually every discussion ends with Adam wanting to do more with more ramps and more. <laughs> it's like <laughs> James, why don't you you know why don't you fly over the crowd like Eddie Van Halen and and so he 
he's he's on the very ambitious end of that and so usually it's us being like hey maybe we'll, why don't we pull that back a little bit we end up somewhere <laughs> in the middle uh, but that usually happens every time <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, when I saw the show, it was very much centered around the songs and the music. But there was definitely, to me, enough production to satisfy the fact that it's an arena show. And it was really fun to see you guys interacting. And, you know, it seems like you and Adam are the only ones off leash, though, when it comes to the catwalk. Yes, that's true. I I made the decision a lot of, you know, for a lot of years, I was like, I'm not going wireless, man going to mess with my tone, you know, <laughs> but I finally, I just had to do it because yeah, we are the only ones that aren't sitting down. Yeah. Well, Jesse's standing up, but he's sort of behind his station. So, so yeah, we try to run around and, and, you know, to add more to the show. And it's, it's a lot of fun too. You authentically look like you're having fun when you play it. It's, it's fun for me and inspiring for me to watch you. Cause I can tell you're having a blast. You're having a good time doing it. It, it, well, it is a lot of fun. And people ask me all the time. They're like, well, you must be sick of playing these songs. But like, if you get up in front of 20,000 people and they're singing back to you and, 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 you know, they're all out there and they've been waiting months for the show to, to hear these songs. They lo- like, it's really hard to have a bad time in that yeah. sort of environment. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, that's why I love watching you. Like I, I can really feel that, that spirit of fun and just, I mean, you can just hear it come through every sort of note. You know, there's just a real, I think that's, that's like one of the great things about your music in general is there's just a real, it's just infused with like a real joy, just every sort of, mm. just every 16th note, like it, yeah. it has that little joie <laughs> de vivre. It's great. I love it. Yeah. What did you expect to happen if you were wanting to write hits? People are going to want to hear those songs night after night. I know when I was, watching you guys, whatever that show was uh, on the tour just recently, I was like, please, please play Harder to Breathe. Please play This Love. Please play Sunday More. Like the songs to me that have so much nostalgia. And I, you know, I, I obviously, I wanted to hear moves like Jagger and I wanted to hear the hits. You gotta do that because so many people, when you start certain songs, the arena just erupts and th- there is a visceral reaction from the audience because they connect with those songs. And I can't imagine you don't feel the same thing coming back to you. But that being said, you do play those songs a lot. They've been a part of your DNA as a band for years. Is there any moments in the show as a guitar player that are like just for you? Well, we still, you know, I really love, obviously, <laughs> you know, I obviously love the solos that I get to take every night. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of fun. And you know, so there's there's a couple of them where maybe I'll more sort of like actually improvise from night to night. But more often for these bigger shows, I end up sort of writing. It doesn't happen. It's not like I sit down to write a solo, but after a while, the solo kind of writes itself. Yeah. And then I, I kind of have like sort of licks that I'll hit at certain points. We usually write a set together and then we figure out these interstitials to to move from song to song. Yeah. And sometimes we'll do like some more crazier stuff in those moments. Like on this last tour, we were messing around at soundcheck and I was doing this like this like speed picking pattern that was kind of like based on like an Ingve mom scene sort of thing. Man, from night to night, like I can't always <laughs> I can't always hit it. <laughs> but, so that one's definitely for me. How do you stay healthy of mind and body on the road when you guys are out for that long? 
it involves, you know, I think you've got to get into some sort of exercise routine, you know, especially once you get to our age. Um, for me, that's tennis. I actually now have a network of people that I play tennis with all over the world because I've been playing tennis for about the, the last 10 years. And so through friends and also just from cold calling clubs when we're in a particular city, I know people that I can play with you sure. know, in Tokyo and in you know uh, Cleveland. That's incredible. Which is, which is awesome. So that's, that's been a big part for me. Um, you know, the other guys, Adam does yoga every day. That's, mm-hmm. that's really important to him. And, and I try to lift some weights too. Um, and then meditation has also been a big thing for me too, which, which has been awesome. And, uh, I found one of my friends that I grew up with in Nebraska, he ended up becoming one of the world's leading researchers into the effects of meditation at Carnegie Mellon. Okay. So he introduced me to this, this meditation teacher named Shinzen Young. He's got a system for meditation that, that I really yeah. like. So you could just Google Shinzen Young. So I try to do that every day on the road. And that really helps just, I mean, with, with everything, I mean, from any sort of performance anxiety or, or also just, um, finding a little bit of relaxation in the midst of, of all that craziness. So yeah, the exercise meditation, um, and, and just, and eating, right. Yeah. Just all the basics and sleeping. It's all the basics but yeah. on tour. It's really hard and it's very easy to get carried away. Yeah. But man, you got to take care of yourself to do it for, for the long haul. Yeah. The Super Bowl. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like as a accomplishment and how, did, what was that experience like for you as a guitar player? Well, that was, that was pretty insane. Um, you know, you talk about that, that calm before the storm, you know, that was, and we've done at this point, we've done pretty much everything you could do as a band. And that was the, the one thing yeah. that was left. And yeah, that moment before going out there was, it was pretty insane. Like, Oh, we're actually just going to go do this now. Yeah. Um, you know, and that it, the, the, the whole experience of this, you know, that was kind of a, a rough experience just because of, of everything that happened uh, politically that year. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So that kind of put a cloud over the whole thing. Um, sure. but, the actual performance itself was, was actually a blast. And it was, yeah. you know, all those things you're talking about, but like times a thousand, it, do, it doesn't seem real that, that we actually did it. You know, when we were, when I was watching like JLo and Shakira, which was an amazing show. Yeah. Which is, I, and also I think that's, that's like, that's a better sort of Super Bowl show. Cause you know, like they can, you know, because of the dancing numbers and everything, you're just like up there, just like playing their songs. Well, man, it was so inspiring for me because to me, I remember back to being a teenager watching you with Real Big Fish, watching you open for John Mayer when you only had 45 minutes worth of music and you didn't have 18 singles that you had to play because everybody wants to hear them. And then seeing a band go to that length, it was so inspiring. And yeah, there was a weird cloud in the country and in the world at the time. And it, it felt weird, but there was something about it that, that gave me goosebumps just watching you having a good time thinking about what what kind of a pinnacle moment that is and how huge that is. That being said, people like me saying all this sort of stuff and you, you reminding yourself of it and knowing that that was like this last box that you needed to tick, how do you tackle that ego trap and how do you navigate competing against yourself? And you know, I know you guys are always trying to make the best thing every time you make something. 
Well, that's a great question. And like, I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I think I, I sort of, I struggled with that question a lot, but I think pretty early on, um, I, I think you figure out, we've been able to accomplish some really cool things as a band, but I think every time you get to one of those, uh, you know, one of those landmarks or one of those pinnacles, there's kind of a feeling after you've done it of like, Oh, is this it? Um, and that, that continues to happen. I think there's this idea in, in general in your life that like, Oh, well, if, if we could just do this, then, then I'll be happy, you know, or, or they'll be satisfied if we do this. And you realize that, that's that it's like you're climbing a mountain. The mountain just keeps on growing. Mm -hmm. So that, that sort of dissatisfaction never sort of goes away. So there's, I mean, this becomes a much larger, deeper philosophical, spiritual question, but like, um, I think, uh, in the case of, of, of music, I think it's being satisfied with doing the work itself. That needs to be satisfying. Um, because the accomplishments will sort of come and go. Um, and you know, like we'll, you'll adapt to, to any of those sort of accomplishments as they come and they'll sort of become, you know, sort of normal. So you need to be in love with doing the work itself because that's the one thing that you're going to continually be coming back to. Like those accomplishments are great, but that's, that's not what really it's about. And you hear people say that and you're like, oh yeah, but I'd really like to do this and this. And that's mm-hmm. true. And, and you know, you work towards those things, but the work itself is actually the satisfying part. Absolutely. I love that. And I, I enjoy hearing that from you because I think there's a lot of people that need to hear that. And I think a lot of us know that at heart, that it is all about the music. It is all about just living out your purpose and your calling and what you're meant to do in the world. And with that, there's a certain amount of somebody who who is in line with that or aligned with that recognizes that you're always a student of what you do. And I've noticed that with you, you're always posting things online about things that you're learning, things that you're working on on guitar. Seems to be that you're you're always, you know, you've had all this success, but you're still wanting to get better at the guitar. You're still craving getting better as a person on the guitar and with tennis, I see you like taking tennis lessons <laughs> on your Instagram and all this stuff. And uh, even now, you know, I've seen you move from the uh, from tenor to soprano, and now you've gone from tennis to to ping pong. And you were taking an Instagram ping pong lesson that I that I tuned in on. You seem to be a, 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 a an eternal student. Is that does that contribute to much of your mindset? How can you speak into that? In terms of guitar. It's fun. I think it's fun to always be working towards new goals. And, you know, it's like when I, when I started off playing guitar, I, you know, I wanted to be like John Schofield, Pat Metheny, Bill Purcell, you know, I wanted to play like straight ahead and then, uh, like got pulled into, you know, more of this, this pop rock sort of direction. So, so there is a sense that there's like all this stuff that I wanted to do on guitar that I never really you know, sort of got pulled away towards, towards this, the, the, the pop world, which, which I love. And I love playing that stuff and I love writing that, but uh, in a lot of ways it, it took me away from, from that track. Um, so I'm always kind of dipping back in to sort of like figure out stuff that, that, that has more to do with that world. But at the same time, a- anytime I dip into that world to learn something, 
it, it inspires the the pop maroon five sort of stuff you know like i, yeah. I never know where an idea is going to come from and it and and so you know learning a new weird voicing or you know like a, or transcribing like a julian lodge like lick you know in a weird way it, it feeds into the the same sort of there are all these different rivers that feed into the same ocean of, of just, you know, the general sort of musicality that yeah. makes sense. But I, yeah, I just love learning stuff. And, you know, with tennis, it's the same thing. And, and, and learning tennis as an adult actually also, I think helps me get better at guitar as well, because when I sort of really started taking tennis lessons at 30, you know, I obviously really had no idea how to play. And I didn't really have a lot of bad habits or anything. So learning that from the ground up was was really informative. And I sort of took that back to when I go take a guitar lesson or, or to be working on something new on guitar of just in terms of like the sequence of steps you need to take in order to master something, which involves like doing it very slow at first before you can, re- you know, yeah. like I would have to take the backhand very painfully slow before I'd be able to to actually execute it and that would be something that maybe i wouldn't allow myself to do on guitar because i'd be like well i'm a professional guitar player i should be able to do this thing now perfectly yeah like in tennis i don't have that attitude it's like i'm obviously not a professional tennis player you need to have that mindset on guitar as well in order to actually improve on something well i think a lot of people when they hear your influences when it comes to schofield frizzell matheny a lot of people might be surprised because the average listener might not think of that sort of thing when they're listening to Maroon 5 or Jajams. But one of the telltale signs for me that shows that influence is your chord voicings. Yeah, yeah. It, it is, I guess, a little unusual. But yeah, early on, I think like a lot of people who come to guitar, you know, like my trajectory was pretty common in that, you know, I got in, well, I was coming in at the tail end of the, the 80s, the shred shred shredding times um you know joe satriani that that was uh that's what i i heard that when i was like 10 and that made me really interested in the guitar but then that quickly transitioned to grunge which uh you know pearl jam got me into the blues and then from the blues it was it was a, a pretty quick route into jazz i was like oh this is this is the shit you know this is the height of creativity on guitar you know what these guys can do and what these guys can improvise is incredible and so so pat metheny was one of those first guys for me that was just huge and once i started hearing his recordings I, you know my mind was blown my my jazz guitar instructor back in lincoln nebraska yeah shout out to peter buffard he played me uh bright size life and that record is just so incredible of course jaco pastorius on there too um and so, so that that kicked off for me in my teenage years, uh, like a jazz snob period that lasted only for a couple of years where I was like, I, I only want to play and listen to instrumental music. And that's when I really got into Pat Metheny. I really got into Bill Frisell, John Schofield. You know, those guys were really the big three for me. But uh Metheny, I got to go see perform in Kansas City. I drove out there um, with some friends and saw him at the, the Kansas City Jazz and Blues Festival. It was Pat Metheny group, um, and 
it was just incredible. And I just, I just always loved his voice on guitar. And so, you know, I, I, I think jazz is, is a great jumping off point just to learn improvisation, to learn, uh, you know, harmony theory. And, uh, you know, I was, I was kept on being recruited into these rock and pop bands and, and all that stuff that I learned from jazz and from Pat Metheny recordings, John Schofield recordings. I was just, I was sort of like watering down and applying to, to, uh, to, uh, a more straight ahead, you know, type of rock and pop music. And yeah, the, like voicings, for example, um, you know, I would take those and sort of and play those in sort of a rock context. And at least in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I was from, not a lot of guys were doing that. So everybody's minds were blown when I book a, a, you know, a major ninth chord, you know, they just, <laughs> they just didn't know. I love that. That's amazing. And legend has it, you have a signature Pat Metheny guitar that he gave you. That is true. I, I had an amazing opportunity. Uh, my good friend Near Felder, I was in New York. We went to go see uh, this, uh, this tribute to Pat Metheny that was put on by the Alternative Guitar Summit guys, uh, Joel Harrison and, and those guys. And they did like a performance that was a bunch of people performing as a tribute to him. And then they actually interviewed Pat and, uh, near kind of knew him a little bit through some different people. So I got to meet him after the show. And then he invited me and near to come over, uh, to hang at his apartment the next day, which was just like incredible. That is insane. Insane. You know, like for me, my, you know, my 16 year old self is just freaking out and he's the coolest, most gracious, uh, just generous guy. Um, and we hung out and talked about music. You know, he was interested in hearing, uh, you know, about how the band started and how we toured and, and, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of gear and stuff. And at the time I was traveling with my signature guitar and it was my personal guitar that I always, you know, when we go on tour that, that I, I take in my gig bag that goes to the hotel rooms that I record with. And it's, it's a special one because uh, I had them build into it a Fishman triple play MIDI pickup. So it's, it's, it's built into it. So I had the thought, I was like, well, you know, Metheny, he would probably dig this because, you know, he still rocks the, the rolling guitar synths and stuff, which is great, which I would never want anything to replace that. But he could probably actually get some use out of this MIDI pickup system. Uh, the Fishman Triple Play, which I think works amazingly, and I think it's it's a it's a it's a a great evolution of that that whole sort of thing. So I gave him my signature guitar that had the MIDI pickup in it because I figured he you know that like you know he's not like a solid body type of player, but he might be able to get some use out of this this MIDI pickup. Um, and so I gave him that guitar, and then like you know like a month later one of his signature guitars showed up on my doorstep. I was like, Oh, that's, that's the coolest. And that's, that's one of my most prized possessions. Uh, so cool, uh, that he did that. And then I, I was actually also able to trade signature models with John Schofield. So, <laughs> so I've, I've got one of his too, because I, uh, I showed up backstage when he performed in LA, uh, delivered him one of mine. 
because Schofield, you know, he could actually he he plays some tellies every once in a while, so he could actually maybe get some use out of out of the Valentine. I don't know if he's ever used it or not, but he, then he sent me one of his in return. So those are like, you know, I'm not like a sentimental guy, and I'm not even that much of a collector. Like I don't I don't collect guitars the way a lot of guys do, but those ones will always mean a lot to me. Yeah, that's insane. And actually, last time I was at your house, you showed me that John Mayer Screaming Eagle or whatever that thing is called. Yes, that's that's also <laughs> that's also in there. I sent him one of mine. Um, and so, yeah, I got one of the, the Eagles, you know, which is like <laughs> there was only a hundred of those made. Yeah. And that that's that's an amazing, amazing guitar, the PRS Eagle one, whatever they call it. So, so yeah, I've got those, those are, those are the, so those three, those are like my very, uh, special guitars that those, those would be the ones that I would grab in a fire. Yeah. That's incredible. And aside from just wanting to have a signature guitar, now I really want to have a Corey Wong signature guitar so I can go to my heroes and trade with them. That's a nice, (laughs) that's kind of what it's all about, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, let's let's shift over and talk a little bit about that because I have a Valentine signature guitar. I've got a BFR Sunburst Music Man Valentine that I love. I used it on one of my records on my Elevator Music for an Elevated Mood album, the song Meditation. I used that guitar, and I've used it on a couple other recordings for other people. It's a dope guitar. That thing is sick. Can you tell me what that process was like how you got involved with Ernie Ball and Music Man and how you guys came up with, with that guitar because it's such an interesting, unique design, and but it also looks classic. Well, let me just say what a privilege and honor it is for you to rock the BFR Valentine. That's, yes. that's incredible. The BFR, for people who don't know, that uh, stands for Ball Family Reserve. So they make, every year they make a special run of, I, I don't know, kind of like deluxe versions of their, their regular production guitars. I don't even have a single BFR in my collection because they sell out every year. Yeah. Um, so, so you're very lucky, but I'm so stoked that, that you play it. And, um, I mean, I can't think of a better person to, to rock, rock the Valentine, <laughs> but yeah, it was a process that, that started, uh, man, a, a few years ago, I, I ran into, uh, Brian and Sterling ball at a tennis tournament. Um, Indian Wells, because, uh, uh, that's out near Palm Springs out in the desert where they have their string factory. So, uh, they, they would, uh, at that time they were one of the sponsors of the, the Indian Wells tennis tournament. So I was there, I happened to run into them and Brian, uh, you know, he said, you know, you ought to think about doing a signature guitar. And I was like, ah, that's not for me. You know, I got, I got my guitars that I like. I'm not, uh. I can't imagine uh, getting into that process and coming up with something that that would beat what I currently have. He's like, well, I'll just give it a try. And so initially, I went into the process basically being polite because mm. I love Ernie Ball Company and everything that they've they've done for me over the years. Yeah. Um, so so I went in and we started talking about uh, the attributes that we would want in a guitar, and and my I idea was to build a guitar that could take me through the entire Maroon 5 set yeah. without having to switch. Um, 
because I would kind of switch from my tellies to to my strat or or to uh, you know a hum more of a humbucker vibe, either you know like my cons I thirty five or at times a Les Paul. Um, so I, I wanted to design one guitar that could do kind of everything because our songs are kind of all over the place, you know, from something like harder to breathe to the obvious, you know, sort of funky stuff, but also to the more just straight ahead rock stuff. So we, we started talking about what we liked in guitars. You know, we, we decided that it would, it would probably start somewhere from a telly. It's got the slab body and then it has the telly style pickups in the bridge. Um, and, the design was really important too, because we did want something that was new. There's to me, you know, just like making a, a, a telly body and then slapping my name on it. It's like, you know, what's the point of that? Really? We wanted a new design, but we wanted something to look classic that you could have found in a pawn shop or something. Uh, so one of my other favorite guitars is a three thirty five, And, and so the, the design process just, started with with us saying what are your favorite guitars the telecaster and a 335 those have nothing to do with each other you couldn't really combine those but then through uh cad i uh, they started putting those bodies together and then we we ended up coming up with that shape that would become the valentine we found it pretty quickly Amazing. and as soon as we we settled on that shape i was i was excited i was like oh this is this looks cool this is something i would play and it's new and it's different um, but it looks classic. And so that was the starting point. And, um, like I said, we put the, the telly style, uh, pick up in the bridge and then the humbucker in the neck. Um, and then the, the humbucker is, is a split coil. So you can turn that into a, to a single coil. So it right there, you kind of have every different kind of sound that you would need in a maroon five set. Um, and, uh, you know, we had the slab body, which at first on the, the first prototypes was a little heavy. So Sterling came up with this idea to do a slight wedge uh, to take a little bit of the weight off. And it also ergonomically kind of lets it sit on your body a little yeah. bit more. And it's a really subtle touch. You, you would barely notice it unless you had it on. But I think that made a, a lot of difference. That's so cool. And... Music Man has done such an amazing job with their signature products because you really do see the character of the individuals in the actual guitars and seeing yours all over the place now. I mean, I've seen everybody from whoever the cat is that plays with The Weeknd. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen R&B players using it. I've seen some jazz guys, pop guys. I have one of them. It's fun to see where that Valentine pops up because it is so versatile. And I think out of necessity, you just wanting to have one guitar that can pass the test through the entire Maroon 5 set, then all of a sudden makes itself very appealing for other guitar players as well. Totally, yeah. I've been stoked to see it all over the place. Like I, like I knew that, that country guys could dig it because, because kind of the, of the telly soul of it. Yeah. But yeah, to see it in a lot of R and B has been really amazing. You know, uh Shemaya Turner who who plays for uh PJ yeah. from my band and in PJ's band. <laughs> um, you know, he's you hear him on it and you're like, Oh man, you know, like he's just, he, he's an insane player. Um and I'm seeing it like in a lot of like worship bands too, I think mm. because or in cover bands, because I think it can cover a lot of ground. So it's like 
you, if you can only take one guitar in the gig or, you, you know, you can't do a ton of switching, it's perfect for that. So it's, it's really cool to see it all over the place. You know, like on Instagram, because people will tag me when they get one, you know, if, and so like, and I pop into their comments and, and write. So, so, you know, if you buy a Valentine guitar, I'll definitely, and tag me in your Instagram, I'll definitely hop into your comments. I like that. Um, to tell you about it because I love seeing it and it's, it's all different types of players. It's so rad. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so cool. I'm so happy for you in that. And it feels like one of those guitars that's just going to be around. Go buy one, go check them out. Everybody. Awesome. That's sick, man. By the way, your neural DSP plugin sick. Oh, thank I, you. I love it. I love it. You know, it's, it's very cool. Cause Obviously, like I've been recording at home a lot. And so, you know, I rock the, the fractal, which I love. Yeah. I rock that live. So I record with that a lot. I've been rocking the aux so I can pull out my uh, my heads. You know, my divided by 13 through the aux has been great. Yeah. But man, your uh, your plugin, it's it's just it's perfect for that direct clean sort of thing with the extra I don't know, whatever compression algorithm you have in there is perfect. <laughs> like, I think that's definitely going to end up on some, uh, on some Rune 5 recordings. Cause it's like, it's that sound yes! that, that I need, you know, it's, it's sick. I love it. Cause I had the, <laughs> I had the, the, the Pliny one too, yeah. which is a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's, it's a completely different type of sound from usually what I'm going for. And, but then I got yours and I was like, Oh man, like if that's like a desert island plug-in man for funk guitar yes it's insane that's that's it's also what i'm cool, talking like the about the reverbs and the spacey stuff like yeah. the meditation sound and stuff like i love messing with that too so you killed it thanks man that's it's that's great so go buy that all right well i'll tell you what and you the valentine guitar through that meditation preset that's off the record dude that's, that's the, the, the album that's sound. The sound yeah that's and that's sound. that's actually what's really cool I think now with things like this is people can get specific products and it's so easy for those of us that are making records, doing stuff that people get excited about to be able to have products and just say, look, this is exactly what I used. This is the exact sound. You can download it right now. You can go to Guitar Center or wherever and just check it out and not be afraid of, oh, are they going to steal my thing? What's actually really unique and cool about it is I can pick up a Valentine guitar and it's going to draw something out of me that's different than how the Cat and PJ's band is going to play with it or the way that totally. you play with it. And it's fun to have these different tools that, like for the plugin, I had an idea of what I thought it's made for. And then other people, like you're saying on Instagram, will post videos and I'll watch this big, oh, that's so cool. I didn't think about even doing that yeah. thing with that or you know so it's fun to to be able to help create tools to inspire people in a new way and and have guitars that are out there like for you hey i want to do it for if nothing else for my own purposes and then it just happens to be something that other people can use and then all of a sudden they're able to blossom more creativity from that thing so i think that's it's such a cool era that we're in as far as gear and all of that side of things. Yeah, I'm really excited to see because, you know, I, I think like our generation, we're still coming at it like 
like we're you know we're we're getting those things to sound like the things that we know and that mm. we've we've sort of experienced or at least I am uh and I know that there's some kids right now coming up like taking these plugins and kind of and tweaking them and 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 messing with them that are going to create completely new sounds that that you know have no precedent and I think that's the most exciting thing you know if Jimi Hendrix were alive today what he would be doing with a laptop, you know, and a guitar, like, like who knows, you know? So, yeah. so, so somewhere right now there's some kids like tweaking this shit and, and coming up with insane sounds. I'm sure that I, I can't wait to hear. Yeah. I love that. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I have a couple quick rapid fire end of the podcast things, just cause I'm curious for my own sake. And we're, we're in gear land now, now that we've dug ourselves into the gear hole, I just want to, just three rapid fire questions. Any piece of gear that somebody needs, it doesn't necessarily need to be your favorite thing. What's one piece of gear that everybody needs 20 bucks ish or less? Ooh, um, that is a great question. Um, okay. Here I will recommend something that's, that's brand new that Wayne Krantz just released. Cause I was going to say a metronome. Now we're talking. Uh, my, my first thoughts were like, when, when my first like thought that. was like clip tuner. I love clip yeah. tuners. Can never have enough clip tuners. But uh, and then I was going to say metronome, but Wayne Krantz, uh, you know, I follow him on Patreon, which has been really cool. He just, he does these like 20 minute videos every day where he just talks, plays. It's different every day. He just released something called the human gnome. Hmm. Um, so it's a metronome that basically uh, the time changes, you know, rather than just being click, 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 it'll, you know, it'll go like at a hundred BPMs for a certain amount of time. And then you don't know when, then it's going to switch to 110 BPMs. Okay. So it's, it's like, it's a listening mm. uh, exercise where you have to really be listening, really listening so that while you're playing over it, you can adjust to this, this metronome sort of randomly changing time. Cool. So boom, that was a longer answer than a, than a rapid. That's fire. okay. That's Okay. <laughs> Well, your your response was quick. You you knew what you wanted. That's what was. That's what yeah. I wanted. Yeah. Okay. Something that everybody needs. Couple hundred bucks ish or less. So, okay. One of my favorite um, effects pedals that I think has been underused is is the Roto Vibe. That's always been on on my. Did you ever mess with the Dunlop Roto Vibe? I don't have that. Tell me all about it. I mean, it's it's like it's like a chorus. It's kind of like a univibe, but it's it's like uh, it's just got a different flavor. Okay. And it's bright red. I don't even know if they make it anymore. I've just I've just always had one, and it was always it was always the pedal on my board that people would be like, "What's that?" And especially early on in early Maroon Five days, it was it was all over the records, and especially all over live. I love that. And you that's not something that you recreate in your fractal. That's one of the things that you would still put on your board. Um it is no, I have recreated it in the fractal because we went purely in the box. Yeah. Just you know, for the first time on this last tour. But yeah, I don't get that quite quite that same effect. So that would be one that maybe I'd I'd put back on the board. Sure. Yeah. And with those sort of things, it's sometimes it ends up just being preference. You know, like, oh I'm used yeah. I'm used to this sound. Somebody else might actually like the fractal sound better. 
but for you, you're used to the other one and you like the other one better. So whatever. Totally. Uh, all right. Now I'm playing softball. I'm just, I'm going to just lob this one right down the middle of the plate for you. What's a product that everybody needs? Price is no limit. Man, this is, you know, the Valentine guitar. That's there. We're too, there we go. I mean, that's, you, know, that's <laughs> you get that Valentine guitar, just plug it with that, that Corey Wong archetype, you know, and you're done. Make a record, make a record. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you're guaranteed to have decades worth of hits, just like totally, Room 5. Totally. <laughs> well, James, thanks so much for being with us today. Really a treat to talk with you. What a pleasure. And uh, hopefully I will see you in person sometime soon. I hope so. There you have it. James Valentine. Good friend. Great wisdom. Look, I got to say it. Feels weird to say it, but if you don't know Maroon 5, go check them out. They're on Spotify. They're on Apple Music. Go to Trader Joe's right now. They're probably playing over the loudspeaker. Dope band. My favorite record, Songs About Jane. They have amazing hits since then, but that one to me holds really close. And as a guitar player, that album is the most fun to listen to for me. Anyways, don't forget next week, Corey Wong's solo endeavor. Hit me up, Corey J. Wong on Instagram or Corey Wong Music on Facebook. Come at me. Tell me what you want to hear me talk about. I'm going to tell you my most valuable lessons I learned from this experience of this season. And I'll just get into some questions. So, Hit me up. Let's hit it. Peace.